0: Hey everybody, coming to you this week with some sad news. Uh, Ace has been in France this week and um, I had mentioned to him that the beaches in the south of France were topless and he, as as ever, didn't listen properly and has been arrested for being bottomless on a French beach. We've been required to terminate him and in his place on Envoy Recorded Radio, we now have Alan Wayndale. Yeah, sharing, this, sharing a name with me. I'm Scott Wayne. And I'm Alan Wayndale, no relation. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. <laughs> Okay, so this week uh, we are talking about a whole raft of things. Let's start with, as I breathe in, let's st- start with weight loss drugs. A Zempic, <laughs> hello, Doctor Dow. You look very thin. Talk when to you me about. I'm like breathing really tight. Talk to me about a Zempic. So, so first of all, describe what this drug is. Everybody's going to know what this drug is. This is just one brand name for multiple varieties of the same thing. What is it?
1: Yeah. Well, basically, we have begun to understand the hormones that regulate eating and hunger and satiety, that feeling of being full. And with that, we've been able to make drugs that re- result in about 20% weight loss, some some even more, which is about the same as getting a gastric bypass surgery. So you're sort of giving yourself a chemical <laughs> surgery. bypass yeah, surgery. So no yeah. surgery. Just use that. And there's even some better ones coming down the, the pipe that are even more, more powerful. But huge amount of weight loss, great for diabetes, great for treating obesity.
0: So... This is great for people who are truly struggling with weight loss. And it looks like back in the UK, the National Health Service is going to prescribe this, uh, which means it will be very cheap for, for people to use in, in uh, countries that approve it. Is, but there's huge demand from people who don't, quote, wouldn't, wouldn't be prescribed this by their physician. So what are the ramifications of that?
1: Yeah, well, so so first of all, we're seeing shortages now. The, the pharmaceutical company will, will right, ramp, ramp up. they make this they'll, they'll catch up, and they'll, and they'll sort of ramp up. But it's interesting because if you are someone who is is normal weight or even below weight and are using this to to sort of be thin, stay thin, um, so two problems: one, you probably have an eating disorder, and it'll be interesting to see how we have to rethink
0: about classifying well, hang on disorders. A so, what do you mean? It probably means you have an eating disorder if you're taking this and you don't need it.
1: Yeah, well, so you're probably trying to get to a body. Shape that is not where you sort of biologically should be, perhaps an unha- unhealthy okay. one.
0: So an unnatural state for your body shape.
1: Yeah. So compared to someone who's who's anorexic and doesn't eat yeah. to try to, to get to slim down, so you have what we call body dysmorphic disorder. Um, but now we have a sort of even more powerful uh, medical way of getting there than taking you know, diuretics and make you pee and things that make you poop that people have used in the past to to
0: sort of do this. Now and they can sort of make it so you're just not feeling hungry. And is that so? step away from anorexia and bulimia a little bit. Is there a different layer? Are we creating a different layer here, though, where there is that, that sort of ideal, that quote, ideal body type, whether for men or women, and it's now being put within reach of many more people. Is that in of itself unhealthy? Because we're just, if everybody starts to use this drug, it's, it's going to lead to um, setting, setting even more of a standard about how we should look.
1: Well, I, I think there are only certain people that care about reaching that that type of ideal. They say this is what I really want to want to look like. Um, so um, it, it may shift the standard some, and that more people can can work to sort of attain that. So you think about someone who, um, you know, uses plastic surgery and and Botox and maybe takes uh, steroids already and at the gym to try to get them more muscular. It's, it's people that do different kinds of things. It's just another tool in that in which to to try to get people to the the body that they they think they should have. Now I think most of us are like okay well I'm a little overweight and I'll just kind of roll with it. Um so I, you know it, it's not lots and lots of people not it's not 80% of the population for sure it's probably more like 20%. But I do think you know it is going to add another thing to that sort of um way that we use medications to try to get to a beauty ideal for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, so it's going to push back on so suddenly it's going to put a physique in reach for a significant number of people that could reach that, quote, like magazine ideal right at the time we're putting a pressure on magazines to be more uh, diverse in the body shapes that they show and redefining attractiveness. Like I feel like this is going to narrow even further this idea of what attractiveness is. I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: I, I kind of think people are never – that are that are going to use this kind of cosmetic thing are never happy with how
0: they look. Uh, yeah, but I think you're underestimating the. Enormous volume, the proportion of people who feel that way.
1: Yeah, well, so so I think people that that are a little bit overweight and want to get get down to sort of what would be sort of
0: average weight. You know, I'm going to ask you a really awkward question. Go go for
1: it. it. Yeah, yeah, but but I but I I think that that's a different group than the people that are already at average weight and are trying to get sort of almost below weight.
0: Should the two hosts of Envoy Recorded Radio consider taking a zemping? So I I don't think so. The one, including the one that's just been fired for yeah. for exposing <laughs> yeah. himself on a beach.
1: Yeah. So so I, I don't think so. So so there's there's two problems with, um, sort of the way we think about it. First of all, if you look at at BMI, which is you know a little bit of an imperfect measure, but what what correlates? BMI is a with-
0: horrible measure of anything. Well, we might as well just throw coins in the and see how they well, went.
1: Well, I, I think BMI is is a a loose proxy for 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 what people should weigh, better than weight, but and yeah, we don't okay. have anything better, and all so that, that's the okay. issue: is that people are like, okay. like it's awful to okay, like, well, what's better? BMI is a, is a, a step towards it, and we will have something better in in ten years, and we probably need to do stuff with measuring people's water mass and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you, you know, we we know that people that have a BMI that's a little overweight, twenty six actually have the best long-term outcomes. So it's okay to be a little bit overwhelmed. So
0: BMI plus is a good place, plus yeah. a little. Plus a little, plus, plus a, little. a little, plus okay. a little.
1: So 21 to 25 is sort of considered you know, normal, but actually 26, people at 26 live longer. And then, then
0: people at 25 or 24. Yeah,
1: yeah, okay, yeah. So, so somewhere's like, I, mean, yeah, I think you make my case bounds.
0: that BMI is a rubbish measure, but yes, yeah, is, is, is no, but I don't think it is a rubbish measure, but I think finding the right measure. But you're saying that we shouldn't, I guarantee that my BMI is not 26 and I, I don't want to speak for my esteemed colleague here. I'm fairly confident his isn't either. So would a pres- prescription of a zampic or an equivalent serve as well?
1: I right, Well, so you, now, now you're yeah. making your own point that BMI is the wrong measure because really what we're talking about is probably fitness. Yeah, and okay. so, you know, the real key is, you know, can you can you do the things you want to do in your life and are, and are you exercising enough to, for sort of cardiovascular fitness? And Ozepic's not going to get you there.
0: So, but isn't that a shortcut, though? So are we risking people will now not go for that run, not go exercise to control their weight because the drug's going to suppress their appetite and do it, quote, for them? But from a cardiovascular perspective, they, they won't get any benefits. Is that, I think? Yeah,
1: well, I, I think I think you're getting to the and that, that I I talk about over and over again which is that we really think about health in the entirely wrong way and we don't really train our our children our young people about health in the wrong way we're we're really reinforcing health as a as a way to beauty rather than as health in and an of itself and so mm. you know I would love for example with with athletics that there be less focus as kids go through cool, school about Competition and who's going to win and who's going to become an elite athlete. We we need some of that. You know, we sure. want to have our Olympians and our professional athletes, but yeah, you know, almost all those kids that that play sports are not going to be that. And so, how do you get them to say, "I'm doing this for the love of of moving, the love of activity, maybe even the love of competition," and I can I can play in sort of a rec league kind of w- way going forward, and and learn all of those skills to lead them to a healthier life rather than than thinking about. Um, this idea that, that health is, is something completely separate from athletic competition.
0: happened just this morning. I asked one of my daughters if they wanted to go to summer practice. And they said, no, it's just the really competitive crew that go there. i just love to go play. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It'd be great so, if you could just go play. So how do we orient uh, exercise for health, not exercise for health, in order to look a certain way? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you think about like what, what you lo- love to do. I mean, you love paddleboarding. You love running in the woods. You know... It, how do you get opportunities for young people to sort of discover that and enjoy that and have that sort of exploration and fulfillment that's not in structure practice or in, like, going to the, you know, the supervised coaches workout in the gym where you're you're doing a lot of, like, you know, box squats and lifting and things like that?
0: Yeah, or gyms generally, uh, except yeah. for, like, these uh, – what, Perry, what's the name of, like, the powerlifting gym type stuff where people go to? I don't know why I knew you would think of this like <laughs> <laughs> he's like the perfect body of perry's like i'm just perfect yeah it's perfect that looks perfect. great yeah. no but You're like, taking a like pick, perry? there's like there's uh commu- I, hey perry are you taking a Zempic? <laughs> oh good so will there be social stigma or social pride because there's social stigma right now like and i'm hearing of sort of black markets sort of in this thing, yeah, yeah. friends passing this stuff yeah. but that that's gonna fade right it's gonna be like viagra and other stuff that uh, is Viagra still stigmatized? I
1: don't know. Uh, well, and there's still Viagra black markets and, and subtle ways to get it too. You know, because people that want to take Viagra but don't want to go to the doctor and say, you know, I, I want Viagra. Or maybe the reason they want it for is not really something that we would medically
0: give it for them. Okay. All right. Talk to me about doctors a little bit. So we have lots of TV doctors and lots of radio doctors and lots of podcast doctors. But the body is a complex beast. Talk to me about your type of doctoring because you're you're a particular type of physician, but you're, you're more generous, but you're also interested in public health. So why do you why do you come on things like this and talk? And we're going to talk about a raft of stuff today, but why why, did, why do you do this? You know what makes really bad TV? Slow
1: incremental change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the kind of doctor I am, is that I, I really think it, it's, you know, so many things in life are just about how do you make things just incrementally better, 1% better, But then that accrues over time and so that you're doing better so you know you you go for uh, a a run to use the exercise example or um, a paddleboard or whatever and it's not that like all of a sudden your life is going to be tremendously better the next day you know your your life has now gone from a five to a ten but maybe it's gone from a five to a six and you do it and for a few days in a row maybe it goes from a six to a seven and then maybe for a while it goes from a seven to an eight and and so you're you're healthier and you're sort of moving forward and that's true with with diet, with sleep, with the sort of general concept of fatigue that we've talked a lot about. And so a lot of what interests me about public health is how we make our lives a little bit better in all these ways that add up to having a much better life. Um, you take the, the conversations around um, loneliness and well-being and connection, um, those are things that, that we have incrementally seen get worse probably. And so the answers are to try to incrementally make them better.
0: But that's not exciting. It's not exciting. That's not a headline.
1: Yeah, you're not going to be able to fit that into a 48-minute TV show or a movie or – you know, it, it's frankly, it's crap for podcasts. So I'm kind of upset we're talking about it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's change subject. Okay. But let's stay with that theme. Let's come to President Obama because I recall when uh, Democrats were in dismay and disarray about the election of President Trump. President Obama talked about doing something that you just described but in a social and political sense, which is – don't don't hyperventilate on social media go do things in your community go volunteer go contribute make society better sort of channel that energy but but you want to talk about president obama post-legacy like what is it about um obama that's interesting you
1: well you know when people are no longer presidents they sort of stepped in these very different roles i mean you think about Jimmy Carter, who you know is building houses and and working on getting rid of of rare eye diseases, and And the worm thing, yeah, the worm thing, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, doing these very substantive things consistently for you know 40 years. And and so, he
0: chose to do unglamorous things, yeah, because like the I forget the name of the worm, Google Google Jimmy Carter and worm, and you'll see, yeah, I think it was the guinea worm, thank you, just horrific, horrific condition. mm -hmm. That nobody wanted to address because it was like uncool. Yeah, and he did it. And well, and, we, and he and he housing, knew it was uncool.
1: He knew it was fixable. That we had the the tools to fix it. Yeah. we just don't have the infrastructure to fix it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there, there are Carter people all around the world. We're running a program at the moment in Carter Center people in mm-hmm. Ethiopia and South Sudan, and I like mm-hmm. that. You hear very little about yeah. it, but yeah. it's all it's all there. Yeah. Okay, so that was yeah. Carter. Yeah.
1: Well, and and I, you know, there's the Clinton Foundation. You know, is is another example. Um, I think. Um, the Bushes have been involved in various things to try to sort of. So he's gone going deep, forth.
0: veterans, um, and one could argue sort of stabilization mm-hmm. has been George W.'s approach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, let's skip over the Clintons.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, mixed figure for sure. You know? and, and Trump has been busy with his trumping legal things. Been trumping, yes. So well, he's yeah. got some issues. So, um, but you know, Obama's probably been the most public of of them all. Maybe Clinton would be the other one that would be even even close um, because he's a, a writer and a speaker and a convener, and that's a lot of, of what he, he does. And the Obama Foundation has done a lot of work, and you, you may know more about it than, than I do. But one of the things I love is that he's sort of become this cranky uncle that sort of wags his finger at us when we're— Spending time thinking about the wrong things, and so their most recent example was with this this Titan sub that you guys talked about last week, and comparing it to the the migrant trawler that flipped over, seven hundred fifty people, and with yeah. you know hundreds of people dying. And where we were focusing our attention, And he just was giving a speech somewhere, um, doing some Q and A, and gave just this sort of finger wag and saying, "Y'all are focusing on the wrong things," and we need those people, right, yeah. to sort of say, "Look, <laughs> you guys need to need to, you know, really think about the right." the right things here and what where your priorities should be
0: so he was channeling me in that latest interview because he was ranting about he wasn't ranting I would have ranted he delivered it very calmly which is uh for people who want great careers stop ranting about no, stop bleating about the skills that you have and learn how to get things done how to take things off your principle and move them forward I I felt he was making my making the case more eloquently for my rant a few weeks ago as we go through
1: yeah yeah and I think I think that sort of like Moral recentering. I mean, we kind of need that sometimes,
0: you know. Yeah, and well, actually, can we can we talk about so President Obama s- speaks quite freely about how intense being a president was and post presidency how he decompressed from that. Unlike President Clinton, who seemed to thrive on um, the intensity and wanted to kind of continue it through the Clinton Foundation, and then President Bush, I think, followed Obama's model, which is we're going to give lots of space and distance from um, for for the successor. But there there was an article that was posted yesterday um, by the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who I know a little bit, um, like him a lot. He posted this article from HBR about the, um, for a high-performing team, we need to ask 85% effort rather than 100%. So almost acknowledging that if you're in a situation like working at the White House or the Pentagon or somewhere that's deeply, you can imagine how the Pentagon was over this past weekend with things going on in Russia, is that in order to step up to 100% sometimes you have your operating tempo has to be 85% and this article was written by Doug McEwen and he's fine he's like just sort of a general leadership author but it was an interesting concept this idea that yes you have to sort of maintain this steady pace Um, I'm avoiding the metaphors of marathons and those sorts of things but consistency but one of the techniques they talk about in this article is being clear about being done for the day and pre COVID, we would have talked about this a lot. It's like, hey, choose your time of day, and they're very clear. Like, choose your firm's time of day. It can be five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, four o'clock, whatever it is. But encourage people to be done for the day, switch off, recharge, come back. And I was reading this, it's like, yeah, we like, I get this, totally get this. And I was like, how do we, how do we do this today? How do we do this when we don't have shift work in in office work at least? We don't have this in. in Uh, We don't have shift work. We've introduced flexible hours. Um, We're celebrating the ability. I'm going to take Kate momentarily to the orthodontist for a couple of hours for a treatment. I'll work later in the evening. But me working in the evening means there's electronic chatter for the Mm -hmm. team. Like, what is the – are we seeing anything from the mental health experts around boundaries, absence of boundaries, what's working, what's not? Or is it too early to say on some of these things?
1: Yeah, I don't know if we have specific data about the mental health impacts of it, but but I, I I can tell you there are impacts for for sure in terms of when we think about about burnout and, and well being. Um, you know, I, I've seen that in lots of examples of lots of people that I've that I've I've worked with. I mean, we we kind of went through this big social change where it used to be that you know work was was over here and life was over there, and you kind of had more separation. And then we went into this period where we talked a lot about work-life life integration, which has been most of our professional lives, where where you were trying to sort of keep these things together. But it, it continued to sort of bleed into each other, where work and life were just always sort of, of mushy together. And so you're, you're right. I think we kind of have to take a step back and say, okay, well, this is work time and this is non-work time, and how am I going to sort of sort of balance those things? And, and you have to do that as an individual. The other interesting thing that I think was in what we, what you're saying there was how you role model that as a leader, because when you go to take your daughter to the orthodontist, the people around you notice and say, oh, look, that that must be OK behavior. And I think that's actually a good thing to say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to value this time with my my daughter and and family and do these things and and share that with with other kinds of things. Um, as you know, my my clinical yeah, kind group, of though.
0: Can I jump in there? Yeah. But when you melt these best practices, it sort of gets messy. So I worked all day yesterday. I didn't have the kids. Mm-hmm. I worked from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And purposely didn't post anything to the team. Yeah. Right. So because I was yeah. trying to follow that best practice, that don't yeah. make people feel like they should work at all times. Yeah. Now what the team sees me is taking two to three hours off in the middle of the day. So if their experience is, oh, there's like one of the bosses, quote, slacking. I'm not saying they think that, but but that would be in a in a regular company, that would be sort of the the perception. And it runs a little bit counter to this knocking off time because if you if you have that fixed time to finish <laughs> I'm so unpopular on this subject. Like I just Well, I, I think that's your own
1: insecurity speaking about you? how how you want to be viewed as like high performer and all the go- we we've been, you know, acculturated into this and we should always be working. And so you feel guilty about going to, to take your daughter. No, I don't recovery? feel
0: guilty. I actually feel the opposite. I uh-huh. feel like are you not giving are you not giving the impression that it's licensed not to quote do I feel we're in this trap of we have lengthened the day to do mediocre work instead mm-hmm. of dent, tightened the day to do the work. Mm. Like, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think you're seeing the pull of these, um, the same leaders who are being celebrated for their corporate leadership are the same people pulling people back to work. So CEO of Apple, CEO of Disney, um, whether you like them or not, the, the leadership at Google uh, these they're all pulling people back into the office mm-hmm. and I don't think it's through malevolence no. like I and no they're not saying it's I think they'd be pilloried if they said it for mental health but i'm I'm really struggling with this idea of the the flexibility in the but I just think they're contradictory ideas and we're pretending that they're not and i I don't have a way to navigate through that
1: yeah well i I think I mean there are certain people that can work virtually and the the job and the person fit well to to do that. But but I agree with a lot of the CEOs that getting people back in person at least somewhat is important because you need that that culture. And that culture comes from connections that really happen from these serendipitous conversations you have. So you and I were just chatting outside on the the patio before we started doing this and people were arriving here for the day and we started having all these little conversations. And that was it was wonderful. You know, and I'm I certainly wouldn't consider myself Part of your team in any sort of intimate kind of way. Well, you are
0: now because he's been fired for exposing himself <laughs> on a French that's piece. Good. Is this rumor <laughs> traveling fast enough? Am I encouraging this? Yeah, yeah
1: that's yeah. good. That's good. I can't wait to see the Instagram picture. <laughs> uh, actually, never mind. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, there's there's so much that happens there in terms of of connection and and you know building a culture, and that I think is really essential.
0: Yeah. It yes to the to the coming back. I I think there is a. Um, so the pressure, so maybe I project a little bit because I feel if I was a corporate employee, mm-hmm. so back to the mental health thing, I think I would be doing a lot of harm to my coworkers because um, I think there's a lot of evidence that I know how to bullshit quite well. If I was in a corporate job where I didn't really care about the outcome, right, and I think I'd be slacking like crazy in this environment. Yeah. Well you would you would do I'd be gaming it. the system, but yeah. that load would have to be carried somewhere. So the more diligent person yeah. like there's there's a basic math to this. For everybody I see that's posting like I did this or was the latest one is about um, companies trying to get people in on Mondays because yeah. they feel that starts the week. And there's that slow burn in, so mm. it feels like Ace might actually be getting his wish, where we end up on the four day working week de facto mm. is that people come in for four days and Fridays are pretty much slacking time. Mm. Um, but it is yeah,
1: I'm, well, so I, so I think there's the the four day consist, constituency that wants then like the three day weekend every week, and and Ace is actually probably in the demographic that would want that.
0: Well, he's 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 like me. He's a deep hypocrite because he says he wants to work a four day week, but actually works seven, seven days a uh, week. Yeah,
1: I, I know. But but I'm but I'm saying when you're when you're you know late twenties, early thirties, like three day weekend every every weekend sounds great. Yeah. But you and I know that the flexibility that we want is so that we can do things during the day. Like I can come here and yeah. do this with you, and then you know I'll I'll do some stuff later in the week in the middle of, of my day that you know is is important to me to kind of work around. But we make up for it because we're doing all sorts of work at other other kinds of time. Um, to get back to your article about eighty-five percent, because we gotta fail. Yeah. yeah, so I actually don't see it as all that different than the incrementalism that I think about with health, and that you're trying to do good work every day to move things forward, and not really great work one day, and then like your mm. work is is crap for the next four days. Mm-hmm. And and I think some people approach that work that way, where they they you know will sort of solve a crisis, often that they've created and be like, well, that was great work. And then they won't do very good work for the next four days. And, and how you find the people that do just sort of consistently high-level work, those are the people that at the end of the year have done a lot, and at the end of five years are just you know, tremendously changing an organization.
0: And they're rare. I, that's anchoring bias, isn't it? You, we anchor our memories. To the peaks and troughs, mm. not the consistent score. Mm-hmm. I worry about that on uh, on incentives within organisations. Is mm-hmm. that when you're giving, when you have discretionary bonuses, you tend to measure people's peaks, yeah. not a consistent delivery, and you have to constantly fight that as you think about rewarding people. And we don't we we struggle to reward. We will we will reward a dramatic person who resolved that drama, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily instinctively reward the undramatic person throughout mm. as that goes through. yeah 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 Yeah. which is a struggle with Perry because he's so just constantly dramatic no, he's not level-headed at all. Just doesn't. Just consistently deliver. I all can right. see why you don't give him like a like Talking run. about high performance, you roll in here. So so I should explain. We Ace and I have a working note for Envoy Recorded Radio, which we uh, reluctantly gave you access to. And there's a little section at the bottom which says secret, possibly unwanted contributions by Alan, where you're either telling us to talk about something or you want to talk about it. So on here you have, as we're talking about high performance, 30% of NBA players suffer with depression. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, well, I, I just I saw that stat and it it surprised me because I think um, lots of people, including my fourteen year old son, put put NBA players on this pedestal as like you know that, that was that would be his dream job would be to play in the NBA. Yet there are pretty high rates of depression and anxiety in there, and um, it, it's it's probably higher than the general profession, general population, because you've got people that work under extreme pressure, and if they fail, they lose their job, and you know if you. You think about that in the context of, of our livelihoods and the work we do. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of risks there and a lot of demands that you perform. Some of which you don't really have control over. You depend on your teammates. You you hope you stay healthy. Those kinds of things. And it's true in other sports too. Is that you see really high rates of um, what we call serious mental mental illness in terms of people you know that that have you know medical problems that need you know, medical attention to sort of um, help them help them with it. Um, we really. Uh, I think, remember the high profile uh, examples where, you know, people, you know, tear off their jer- jerseys in the middle of the game or get in a fight with fans or, or things like that. But it, it's really a, a deep problem for these professional athletes.
0: Is that, do you think it's to do with the connective tissue of you're getting sort of immediate feedback about your performance? Like, what, what is it that is about athletes versus, so you are, you're affecting people's lives very directly in a hospital setting. And, and you'll see the direct outcome of that sometimes, I think, but I think others, it's longer term. I feel it from our way. It's, it's funny because we do this and we joke a lot. And But one of the reasons I often think that the humor that we deploy through things like recorded radio is a little bit to balance out some of the serious stuff we work on. I wonder if people work out that the 10% of things we talk about is only 10% of what we do, and the other 90% is pretty heavy, 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 heavy stuff. We don't see... I I carry the weight of if we don't influence these decisions, then these thousand or so hundreds of thousands of people will be affected in a way because we fail to have decision-makers take this seriously. But you're not getting that immediate... Like, nobody dies on a bed in front of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody... In a sports game, I'm not getting immediate feedback. We get it when we deliver a speech, but I don't really care about that. Like, what what is it about athletes that they experience that pressure?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know because I, I think probably the the feedback is is part of it. I mean, you know, I, I love to have people cheering me. And I've often thought you guys should set up a program where you just have like a crowd of people cheer for people. and you have Lucy to...
0: Taylor, you listen. Lucy Taylor would love to. Lucy would love yeah. this. Yeah.
1: Okay. Lucy, let's do this. Wait. A
0: crowd of people just cheering. Come yeah. People,
1: the can, they, get, they get on stage for five minutes and everyone just gives them a rousing standing <laughs> ovation. And then they sit back down and then the next person comes up.
0: <laughs> this is literally the conversation I had with Lucy yesterday. Oh my yeah. God.
1: Because I, I, I would love to study it to see what, happens, <laughs> see what like, happens. Like your endorphins go. Because, yeah. you know, I've, I've gotten a few nice rounds of applause, you know, <laughs> in the past. And it's like, okay, that, that's good. Actually. One of my favorite things about running the Richmond Half Marathon is people cheer for you for two hours. You know, oh. and I kind of almost want to run slower so that they'll cheer so more. Just, I <laughs> just want
0: to experience more of these yeah. cheers. My time was lousy. Yeah, I was can, can, can I do
1: another run. lap? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in contrast, professional athletes also get booed and jeered, and and you know some of them, of course, seem to seem to thrive on this. So, so there may be some aspect of, of the feedback. I also suspect that you are doing all of this unseen work that then culminates in these pinnacle moments. Um, and so I think about someone like um, Simone Biles in the Olympics when she just, you know, mm-hmm. could not perform. And I, you know, I, I can't say what was going on in her Let's just head. clarify.
0: Could not perform at the standard she expected yeah, of herself. exactly. Yes. <laughs> Relative exactly. to yours and my performance. That's right. Was, yes. That's right. Have you seen me do a cartwheel? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I think there's probably a lot of complicated things going on under the mental health of athletes and why they struggle. Um I just think it's amazing that these people we put them on the on this platform
0: and they have these huge struggles. Mm. Do you think the same might apply to musicians? Like is the mm. scoring effect different in the sense that you if if you are Beyonce right now on tour or you're Taylor Swift on tour you're just mm-hmm. immersed in these adoring crowds mm-hmm. but you don't you're not seeing the negative reviews. Mm-hmm. Necessarily, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing all kinds of negative reviews. But do you think they suffer from the same kind type of performance depression? Is it the same thing? Is it all a big show?
1: Yeah. Well, and I might put Beyonce and Taylor Swift in a different category than um, the the typical musician. Like demigod that, status. That, well, just I think they may have figured it out. Okay. I mean, they yeah. both seem pretty savvy. Yeah. Whereas, like, there's a lot of musicians that they'll have, you know, one or great two albums, two great albums, and then and then they they can't sustain it. And I think it is. That pressure and the mental health and their life changes, and then it's like, okay, what do you 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 now told your life story. What are you going to do for album number three? And they just can't. Um, and so I, I, it's interesting, you know. Yeah. I'm certainly not the expert on this, but it's interesting to think through.
0: All right, uh, two last things before we let you go. Save people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> types of fun. I love this. Do you remember this? You posted this ske- yeah. sketch plantations, which seems to be a website. Uh, sketchplantations.com that uses sketches to explain things. This is great. I haven't come across this before. But the fun scale. Should I read this out to you? Yeah. Well, so I so I traced it back. I was trying to figure right. out where it came
1: from. Yeah. But it but it it, it and there's sort of a, a little thread in the internet of things to go to. But but there's three types of fun. So there's the things that are that are I'm now reading off the screen in front of me. You've you turned to me, but but it, it's it's fun to do. It's fun to remember. This is sort of I think what we typically think is, is fun, and they call yeah. that type one fun. Type type 2 fun is hurts a bit to do, but is a bit fun in retrospect. So the the long run is the example there, or that hike where your kids are complaining, but then you get to the end, and like that was fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then type 3 fun is the thing that's not fun to do and not fun in retrospect, but makes a great story. And so the example that I think of now with this, that is since I posted a blog post about this, was when you and I went paddleboarding a few weeks ago. And you checked the water conditions, and they were great. You checked the temperature. (laughs) It was great. You failed to check that the wind was coming no, out of the east. No, I checked the
0: wind speed. I didn't check the wind direction. Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Well, it was coming from the east at like 15 miles an hour. So we were paddling down the James with a wind in our face. And so that if you stopped paddling, you started well, going you went up, up the James. <laughs> and, and you were also like, oh, we should go a little bit further today. It's beautiful weather. So we, we put in further away than we should have. That, that was type three fun. That wasn't fun to do. Not fun in retrospect, but it's a great story. But it makes
0: a great story. And I'm I, now I think about this. Every story that I tell was miserable in the occasion, which makes you think that as you're having fun things, as you're having fun, realizing not to tell people about it because it won't make a great story. Does reverse? <laughs> that's probably true though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. tell people about the great fun that you had because nobody gives a shit. It's not interesting. Doesn't make for a good story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that you tell people what to do for a living and influence their decisions,
0: yet you also make some awful decisions. Oh, I make some terrible yeah. decisions. That's the platform. Yeah. That's the platform of wisdom <laughs> That's good. from That's great. which That's we great. draw. We learned a lot of wisdom that day. <laughs> okay, last one. We're gonna draw on, I'm gonna self-praise here because we talked about reverse innovation a few weeks ago and that cash mm-hmm. would be an amazing innovation today because it's, uh, it is fluid and flexible and non-traceable and all of those things. Uh, but you put on your list not changing money in Iceland. And, and regrets about that. What, what do you regret? So so you went on a trip to Iceland and you just used used electronic payments the whole time.
1: Yeah, we, so we showed up at uh, just family vacation. We were there for a week. I think we showed up on Saturday morning at like six in the morning. The money place wasn't open in the airport. We sort of zipped through. I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to go to the bank and I'll change some money somewhere along the way. Never did. happened. Used yeah. a card in time. Was was great. Mm-hmm. Very easy to do. Very happy with the experience. Um, but I had two regrets about not having any cash. So the, the first is... When You go to another country, there's this sort of like kid like joy I get out of like looking at the money and looking at all the little pictures and who's who's this you know, old person on the bill or why is there a seagull or yeah, what, yeah. whatever. Yeah, you know, there's this sort of historical thing yeah. and you know, it's colorful. It's art, really. It is art. And it's, a I remember to... s-
0: spending 50,000 drachma in Greece when I was a kid. Yeah, that's 50,000. That
1: could be a high roller. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but the second thing, and I realized this sort of through the trip, but then after, is that I enjoy the aspect of like whipping out cash and, and paying for it. <laughs> the well, you know, I feel like a grown man <laughs> when I do it. I don't I don't know what it is. And I was I was a few weeks later, I was um in some city. I was in it's in San Diego. And um I was at a bar with a friend and I had to settle my tab and I pulled out two twenties and plopped them down and just felt cool doing it. And people are like, oh, look, he just paid with cash. <laughs> and so, so there's something, this there is, the is something. Thing, paying with
0: cash. Yeah yeah, 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 Well,
1: there's something that makes me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old and have like, you know, gotten life figured out when I pay with cash.
0: So my brother, when he was at university, my dad would give us a set allowance for the year and he'd give us it just at the beginning of the academic year. And we had to make money to fill in the gaps. That was sort of the rule. So he'd give us his cash. I would put it in my bank account and my brother just kept it in his back pocket. Nine. And now it, the risk of it being stolen was pretty low. He's a hefty guy and you don't mess with him. Um, but yeah, if you said to him, how much money do you have? He'd just pull out this wad from his back pocket and go this much. <laughs> this has to last until June. Um, so but maybe maybe, I, maybe, maybe that's need, the thing. Maybe, yeah. maybe we need to bring that back. I do think this with foreign currencies, like it is pretty dull. I don't change money when I go back to the UK. You now yeah. everything's uh, electronic payment, obviously. Um, but even the euro, like the excitement of crossing borders in Europe is kind of gone. You don't show your passport. Yeah. Once you're into the Schengen area, you don't show your passport. You're not exchanging currency. Like it's not francs and Deutschmarks and drachma and lira. It's it's just this thing. And it makes sense. It's very, it's back in that category of, yes, it's more efficient and it makes sense, but also it's less fun. And therefore, actually, there's no stories. There's no stories at all. Yeah. 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 And they're little superniers of ever. things. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I think we're done for the day. Mm-hmm. I, I do want. To, I do want to ask you um, this last question. What is a jerk score? Because you had this on your list. <laughs> what is a jerk score?
1: Yeah, it's it's too bad Colwood's no no longer with the company. Because I would love his perspective on this. Um, yeah, you know, with with facial recognition and the ability to sort of like have like, you know. AI and pull data from all sorts of sources. It'd be great if you could just hold your phone up to somebody real quick and just see what their jerk score was.
0: <laughs> you know, they, they
1: they've talked about this with being able to see like how much people are worth and and things like that, but I just want to know is this person a jerk or not. And, so and it's like
0: citizen scores. Yeah, and, you know, and the Chinese government
1: might be doing something close to this. And well, then they may be onto something. You know, it might be like the new TikTok. I mean, so yeah, yeah. And and you could then like score people. Like if someone was a jerk, you could just kind of like flip your phone up real quick and, and capture them and be like, hey, "This this this guy's getting a jerk point." Well, it
0: could yeah. also give you different profiles. It could be give you the general jerk score, mm-hmm. and then specific based upon people you have rated highly. Mm-hmm. They rate this person x mm-hmm. y and z so from your perspective mm-hmm. you probably think of it mm-hmm. well and there's
1: probably context too because it'd probably people that like are jerks when they drive or jerks and how they navigate the airport but maybe you know wonderful people outside of that
0: well with full confidence on what our respective ratings would be <laughs> that was envoy recorded radio we will see you next week uh with an, another replacement for ace colwyn